This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafuma. Mark Thompson. Get woke. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. The January 6th hearing for this week was no less compelling than any of the other weeks. And we heard from Oath Keepers spokesperson, Jason Van Tatenhove, the congressman from Maryland, Jamie Raskin, had this line of questioning for him. What did the Oath Keepers see in President Trump? They saw a, a, a path forward that would have legitimacy. They saw opportunity, I think, in my opinion, to, um, to become a, a paramilitary force, you know? Paramilitary force. The, the Oath Keepers wanted to become a paramilitary force. Last week, the Department of Justice indicated that it has evidence of the Oath Keepers bringing not just firearms, but explosives to Washington ahead of January 6th. And the committee's also learned that Stuart Rhodes stopped to buy weapons uh, on his way to Washington and shipped, and shipped roughly $7,000 worth of tactical gear to a January 6th rally planner in Virginia before the attack. Did you ever hear Rhodes discuss committing violence against elected political leaders? Yeah, I mean, that went back from the very beginning of my tenure. Uh, one of the first assignments that he brought to me wanting me to do as more of a graphic artist function was to create a deck of cards. You may remember back to the, the conflict in the Middle East where our own military created a deck of cards, uh, which was a who's who of kind of the, the, the key players on the other side that they wanted to take out. And Stuart was very intrigued by that notion and, and influenced by it, I think. And he wanted me to create a deck of cards that would include different politicians, judges, including up to Hillary Clinton as the, the Queen of Hearts. Um, this is a project that I, I refused to do. But from the very start, we saw that. There was always the, the push for military training, um, including there were, there were, there were courses in that community that went over explosives training. So, yeah, this, this all falls in line. The Oath Keepers, this is again the former spokesperson for the Oath Keepers sharing what his experience was while he was there at, the, while he was with the organization. He had more to say. I I think we need to quit mincing words and just talk about truths. And what it was going to be was an armed revolution. I mean, people died that day. Law enforcement officers died this day. There was a gallows set up in front of the Capitol. This could have been the spark that started a new civil war. And no one would have won there. That would have been good for no one. What was it that made the Oath Keepers, what they were. And, and you heard him talk about the, the need, how they sought legitimacy from Donald Trump. 
um, but they always were going to be a problem. Mr. Van Tatenhove, can you help us understand who the Oath Keepers are? Congressman Benny Thompson. I can, thank you. My time with the Oath Keepers began back at Bundy Ranch with that first standoff when I went to cover them as an independent journalist. Um, I then subsequently covered two more standoffs, the Sugar Pine Mine standoff and the White Hope Mine standoff. It was at that time that I was offered a job as national media director and an associate editor for the webpage. Um, so I, sp I spent a few years with the Oath Keepers and I can tell you that they may not like to call themselves a militia, but they are. They're a violent militia and they are largely Stuart Rhodes. Um, they, um, and I, I, I think rather than try to use words, I think the, the best illustration for what the Oath Keepers are happened January 6th when we saw that stacked military formation going up the stairs of our Capitol. I saw radicalization that started with my beginning of my time with them and continued um, over a period of time as the member base and, and who it was that uh, Stuart Rhodes was courting um, drifted further and further right into the alt-right world, into uh, white nationalists, and even straight up racists. And um, it came to a point where I could no longer continue to, to uh, work for them. But the Oath Keepers are, are a dangerous militia that, that is in large part fed by the ego and, and drive of Stuart Rhodes, who at times seemed to see himself as this paramilitary leader. Um, I think that drove a lot of it. So, to, in, in my opinion, the Oath Keepers are a very dangerous organization. Well, thank you very much. You've talked a little bit about that danger. So, what is the Oath Keepers' vision for America and why should Americans be concerned about it? I think we saw a glimpse of what the vision of the Oath Keepers is on January 6th. Um, it doesn't necessarily include the rule of law. It doesn't necessarily include, um, it, it includes violence. It includes trying to, to get their way through lies, through deceit, through intimidation and through the, the perpetration of violence, the swaying of, of people who may not know better through lies and rhetoric and propaganda that can get swept up in these moments. Congressman Benny Thompson questioning Jason Van Tatenhoe, former Oath Keepers spokesperson. He had a grim warning too, Jason did, for this election cycle. I think we've gotten exceedingly lucky that more bloodshed did not happen because the potential has been there from the start. And we got very lucky that the loss of life was, and as tragic as it is, that we saw on January 6th, the potential was so much more. Again, all we have to look at is the iconic images 
of that day with the gallows set up for Mike Pence, for the vice president of the United States. You know, and, and I do fear for this next election cycle because who knows what that might bring. If, if a president that's willing to try to instill and, and, and encourage to whip up a civil war amongst his followers using lies and deceit and snake oil, and regardless of the, the human impact, what else is he going to do if he gets elected again? All bets are off at that point. It's, it's really interesting, um, folks, to hear this. And some may be asking, well, what made this individual come forward? He sounds sincere. He sounds as if he's gone through a transformation. And it, it, that happens. Um, People do go through transformations. Uh, people do change. People do uh, uh, realize, that, you know, whatever mistakes that they've made and change. We wish more people <laughs> could do that as, as a matter of fact. You know, when we look at even and, and being in in Akron this week for the funeral of Jalen Walker, shot 60 times by the police in Akron, Ohio. And there's there are a group of people in Akron to say, well, we just need to heal and we need to um not cause trouble and we don't need to protest. There's some people who feel that way in Akron. Black folk who feel that way. But you can't even find all right, you can't even find any uh, uh, police officers who are sounding like this gentleman, sounding like those who testified at the hearing this week saying what we did was wrong. What we were a part of is wrong. And it was racist and it was, it was white supremacist. You, you really can't have healing until you have that. And so I, I wish there were people in Akron, Ohio, who is saying the same things as as Jason Van Tatenhove was saying in the January 6th hearing this week. I probably should have broke with them much earlier than I did. Um, but the, the straw that broke the camel's back really came when I walked into um, a grocery store. We were living up in the uh, very remote town of uh, Eureka, Montana. and. Um, there was a group of core members of the group of the Oath Keepers and, and some associates and they were having a conversation at that um, public area where they were talking about how the Holocaust was not real 
And that was, for me, something I just could not abide. And, you know, we were not, we were not wealthy people at all. We were barely surviving, and it didn't matter. Um, I went home to my wife and my kids, and I told them that I, I've got to walk away at this point. I, it, I don't know how we're going to survive or where we're going to go or what we're going to do, but I just can no longer continue and put in my resignation. Remember how we've been talking about this notion of civil war, and and I, you know, I, I get it. I'm I'm sure there were plenty who were involved January six who just were kind of following the crowd. Probably, you know, thought of themselves as as doing a little bit of civil war cosplay, and and before they knew it, they were in it. They were literally engaged in <laughs> in a civil war. I think we need to quit mincing words and just talk about truths. And what it was going to be was an armed revolution. I mean, people died that day. Law enforcement officers died this day. There was a gallows set up in front of the Capitol. This could have been the spark that started a new civil war. And no one would have won there. That would have been good for no one. A civil war. A civil war. Not just a reenactment, not just cosplay, but a civil war. And let's face it, we've been dealing with one ideologically. But this was going to be a physical civil war prompted by Donald Trump because of his tweets, because of his desperation, because he lost. Congresswoman Murphy from Florida questioned Stephen Ayers, an insurrectionist who pled guilty. Um. Mr. Ayers, you were in that crowd at the rally and then the crowd that marched to the Capitol. When you arrived on the Ellipse that morning, were you planning on going to the Capitol? No, we didn't actually plan to go down there. Um, you know, we went basically to see the Stop the Steal rally and that was it. So why did you decide to march to the Capitol? Now, now what did I just say? I, I said that folk, you know, a lot of folk just got caught up in it. But Badu was up there screaming, go to the Capitol, go to the Capitol. And we heard before, I grabbed Stephen. He tried to go up there himself. Should have let him go up there, but. Um, well, basically, uh, you know, the president, you know, got everybody riled up, told everybody to head on down. So we basically were just following what he said. After the president's speech, as you're marching down to the Capitol, how did you feel? Um, I was, you know, I'm angry, you know, after everything that was um, basically said in uh, the speech, you know, a lot of the stuff he said, he already put out in tweets. A lot of, I've already seen it and heard it before. Um, so, I mean, I was already worked up and so were most of the people there. So as you started marching, did you think there was still a chance the election would be overturned? Yeah, at that time I did, um, you know, cause everybody was kind of like in the hope that, you know, Vice President Pence was not going to certify the election. Um, you know, also the whole time on our way down there, he kept hearing about this big reveal. I remember us talking about, and we kind of thought maybe that was it. So that that hope was there. Did you think that the president would be marching with you? 
Um, yeah, I think everybody thought he was going to be coming down. Um, you know, he said in his speech, you know, kind of like he's going to be there with us. So, I mean, I think I believed it. He said it. He said that he would be there. I'll come down here with you. I'll be there. I'll be there with you. That's what Trump said. And, and that's what Stephen Ayers believed. So now, now we heard what made him go there. What made Stephen Ayers and others leave? I first want to ask you about what finally caused you to leave on January the 6th. We know that the medieval-style combat with our police, uh, the occupation of the building, this was going on for several hours until um, the president issued at 4.17 um, a tweet, I believe, that included a video telling people to go home. Um, did you see that, and did that have any effect on what you were doing? Well, when we were there, as soon as that come out, everybody started talking about it, and that's, it seemed like it started to disperse you know, some of the crowd, obviously. You know, once we got back to the hotel room, we seen that it was still going on, but it definitely dispersed a lot of the crowd. What lessons finally do you want the American people to learn from the way you and your family have suffered as a result of these events? Um, biggest thing is I, I consider myself a family man and I love my country. Um, and I don't think any one man is bigger than either one of those. I think that's what needs to be taken. You know, people dive into the politics, and for me, I felt like I had, uh, you know, like horse blinders on. I was, I was locked in the whole time. Um, biggest thing for me is take the blinders off, make sure you step back and see what's going on. Stephen Ayers. Now, let me also mention, he walked up to a U.S. Capitol Police officer and apologized. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think any police, the police officers here in Akron have have offered an apology to Jalen Walker's family. OK, I, I just want to shot him 60 times. Where, where's the apology for that before people start talking about healing and, you know, all of that? We are, we're always nonviolent. The police need to be nonviolent. People who perpetrate violence against us. I was talking to someone earlier. That, that's one of the, the, the you know, situations, you know, in, in, in South Africa, anti-apartheid South Africa. The African National Congress had to declare that it was nonviolent before the government would declare that it was nonviolent. Malcolm said, said it best. Why are we expected to be nonviolent with people? And we are no matter what, because that's what we are. Why are we expected to be nonviolent with people who are not nonviolent with us? Ayers apologize for his acts of violence. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. 
Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Now, guess who else was in on the fun when it came to the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers? Congressman Jamie Raskin. Stone communicated with both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers regularly. The committee obtained encrypted content from a group, tra- from a group chat called Friends of Stone, FOS, which included Stone, Rhodes, Tario, and Ali Alexander. The chat focused on various pro-Trump events in November and December of 2020, as well as January 6th. As you can see here, Stuart Rhodes himself urged the Friends of Stone to have people go to their state capitals if they cannot make it to Washington for the first Million MAGA March on November 14th. These Friends of Roger Stone had a significant presence at multiple pro-Trump events after the election, including in Washington on December the 12th. On that day, Stuart Rhodes called for Donald Trump to invoke martial law, promising bloodshed if he did not. He needs to know from you that you are with him, that he does not do it now. While he is commander in chief, we're going to have to do it ourselves later in a much more desperate, much more bloody war. Let's get it on now while he is still the commander in chief. That, that steward of the Oath Keepers, isn't it interesting as much as there are those who would, would loathe Minister Farrakhan how they steal his phrase, the Million Man March, coined a phrase and then they use it as their own Million MAGA March. Isn't that something? Now, what about this meeting December 18th? That was talked about. This is, again, revelatory for the January 6th committee to share. This is the big meeting, the big coup planning meeting. Cassidy Hutchinson described the meeting as unhinged, a bunch of crazy people in there. Uh, you probably have heard about the My Pillow guy <laughs> being there. Just, just a lot of of unhinged craziness in the meeting. People in the room who probably should not have been there. And so the January sixth committee shared this sort of a montage of what happened in the hearing, uh, beginning with remember the lawyer Sidney. Sidney Powell. Believe that it was going to work, that you were going to be able to get to see the president uh, without an appointment? I had no idea. Uh, in fact, you did get to see the president without an appointment. We did. How much time did you have alone with the president? And I say alone, you had other people with you, but right. from his aides before the crowd came running? Uh, probably no more than 10 or 15 minutes. Was in that. In- I bet Pat Cipollone set a new land speed record. I got a call either from Molly Cipollone. or Cushman that I need to get to the old office. So that was the first point that I had recognized. Okay, there was nobody in there from the White House. Cassidy Mark's gone. What's going on right now? I opened the door and I walked in. I saw General Flynn. I saw Sidney Powell sitting there. I was not happy to see the people in the Oval Office. Well, again, I, I don't think they were providing. Well, first of all, the overstock person, I, I've never, never, never knew who this guy was. Actually, the first thing I did, I walked in, I looked at him, and I said, who are you? And he told me. I don't think, I don't think any of 
these people were providing the president with good advice. Uh, and so I, I, I didn't understand how they had gotten in. In the short period of time that you had with the president, did uh, uh, he seem receptive to the presentation that you were making? Cindy Powell again. He was very interested in hearing particularly about the CISA finding and the terms of 13848 that apparently nobody else had bothered to inform him of. I was asking, like, are you claiming the Democrats were working with Hugo Chavez, Venezuelans, and whomever else? And at one point, uh, General Flynn took out a diagram that supposedly showed IP addresses all over the world and I speak, who, was, who was communicating with whom via the machines and some comment about like Nest thermostats being hooked up to the internet. That was Eric Hirschman. So you heard Sidney Powell, you heard from Pat Cipollone and obviously um, Pat Cipollone gave, he, he did submit to an interview and, and that's the audio we heard from from that interview. So it's been reported that during this meeting, Ms. Powell Michael talked Flynn. about Dominion voting machines and made various election fraud claims that involve foreign countries such as Venezuela, Iran, and China. Is that accurate? Sure. Was the meeting tense? Oh yeah, uh, I, it was not a casual meeting. Explain. Derek Lyons. I mean, at times there were people shouting at each other, hurling insults at each other. Um, it wasn't just sort of people sitting around on the couch, like chit-chatting. Do you recall whether he raised to Ms. Powell the fact that she and the campaign had lost all of the 60 cases that they had brought in litigation? Cipollone. Yes, he raised that. And what was the response? I don't remember what she said. I don't think it was a good response. Cipollone and Hirschman and uh, whoever the other guy was showed nothing but contempt and disdain uh, of the president. Yeah. The three of them were really sort of forcefully attacking me verbally. <laughs> um, Eric, Derek, and we were pushing back and we were asking one simple question. As a, as a general matter, where is the evidence? So, what response did you get when you asked Ms. Powell and her colleagues where's the evidence? A variety of responses based on my current recollection, including, you know, I can't believe you would say something like, you know, things like this, like, what do you mean, where's the evidence? You should know, yeah, things like that, or, you know, a disregard, I would say, a general disregard for the importance of actually backing up what you say with facts. So after that crazy meeting, when Cipollone and Hirschman were pushing back, you heard Michael Flynn plead the fifth about everything that's going on. Remember Dave Chappelle, one, two, three, four, fifth. Uh, <laughs> uh, for those of you, you, you can Google that later. You'll get that later. So after that crazy meeting, where it, all of this is rebuffed, and you heard Cipollone say, nothing is backed up by facts. Trump then tweets that night, come to the Capitol January 6th, 
be there, we'll be wild. Congressman Raskin. Supporters responded immediately. To the tweet. Women for America First, a pro-Trump organizing group, had previously applied for a rally permit for January 22nd and 23rd in Washington, D.C., several days after Joe Biden was to be inaugurated. But in the hours after the tweet, they moved their permit to January 6th, two weeks before. This rescheduling created the rally where Trump would eventually speak. The next day, Ali Alexander, leader of the Stop the Steal organization and a key mobilizer of Trump supporters, registered wildprotest.com, named after Trump's tweet. Wildprotest.com provided comprehensive information about numerous newly organized protest events in Washington. It included event times, places, speakers, and details on transportation to Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, other key Trump supporters, including far-right media personalities, began promoting the wild protest on January 6th. It's Saturday, December 19th. The year is 2020. Alex Jones. And one of the most historic events in American history has just taken place. President Trump, in the early morning hours today, tweeted that he wants the American people to march on Washington, D.C. on January 6, 2021. And now Donald Trump is calling on his supporters to descend on Washington, D.C., January 6th. He is now calling on we, the people, to take action and to show our numbers. We're going to only be saved by millions of Americans moving to Washington occupying the entire area if if necessary all right wing right into the capitol you know there we we know the rules of engagement if you have enough people you can push down any kind of a fence or a wall this could be trump's last stand and it's a time when he has specifically called on his supporters to arrive in dc so that was <laughs> That was a call. Now, let me just go back, though, because one other part about the meeting that was important on December 18th, and that was, speaking of civil war, to try to have the military seize state election machines. On Friday, December 18th, his team of outside advisors paid him a surprise visit in the White House that would quickly become the stuff of legend the meeting has been called unhinged, not normal, in the craziest meeting of the Trump presidency. The outside lawyers who'd been involved in dozens of failed lawsuits had lots of theories supporting the big lie, but no evidence to support it. As we will see, however, they brought to the White House a draft executive order that they had prepared for President Trump to further his ends. Specifically, they proposed the immediate mass seizure of state election machines by the U.S. military. The meeting ended after midnight with apparent rejection of that idea. Again now, that idea is rejected. December 18th, everything about December 18th is rejected. A lot of fighting, a lot of cussing, a lot of swearing. It's all rejected. And then Trump still sends out the tweet. And we heard also from a former Twitter employee 
who is anonymous. Here's the former employee whose voice has been obscured to protect their identity discussing Trump's stand back and stand by comment in the effect it had. My concern was that the former president for seemingly the first time was speaking directly to extremist organizations um, and giving them directives. Um, we had not seen that sort of direct communication before. Um, and that concerned me. So just to clarify further, um, you were worried, and others at Twitter were worried, that the president might use your platform to speak directly to folks who might be incited to violence? I believe that Twitter relished in the knowledge that they were also the favorite and most used service of um, the former president and enjoyed having that sort of power. Now we've been hearing also about Steve Bannon and his now willingness to testify and cooperate. Leading up to January 6th, Representative Murphy of Florida, we'll go back to her, talks about the communication between Bannon and Trump the day before. The next day on January 5th, the day before the attack on the Capitol, tens of thousands of people converged on Washington. While certain close associates of President Trump privately expressed concerns about what would occur on January 6th, other members of the president's inner circle spoke with great anticipation about the events to come. The committee has learned from the White House phone logs that the president spoke to Steve Bannon, his close advisor, at least twice on January 5th. The first conversation they had lasted for 11 minutes. Listen to what Mr. Bannon said that day after the first call he had with the president. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's all converging and now we're on, as they say, the point of attack, right? The point of attack tomorrow. I'll tell you this, it's not gonna happen like you think it's gonna happen, okay? It's gonna be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. And hey, you can't have a hearing without some Ivanka evidence. Uh, uh, she and her chief of staff gave a couple of different stories about what happened. It's been reported that you ultimately decided to attend the rally because you hoped that you would calm the president and keep the event on an even keel. Is that accurate? No, I, I don't know who said that or where that came from. What did she share with you about why it was concerning that her father was upset or agitated after that call with Vice President Pence in relation to the Ellipse rally? And this is Ivanka's chief of staff. Why did that matter? Why did he have to be calmed down, I should say? Well, she shared that he had called the Vice President a not an expletive word. I think that bothered her. And I think she could tell based on the conversations and what was going on in the office that he was angry and upset and people were providing misinformation. And she felt like 
she might be able to help calm this situation down, um, at least before he went on to stage. That's Julie Radford, Ivanka Trump's chief of staff, former chief of staff. Why would she make that up? Why would that young woman lie about any of that? I don't think she's lying at all. Now, at the conclusion of this week's January 6th hearing, there was another revelation shared by Liz Cheney. And one more item. After our last hearing, President Trump tried to call a witness in our investigation, a witness you have not yet seen in these hearings. That person declined to answer or respond to President Trump's call and instead alerted their lawyer to the call. Their lawyer alerted us. And this committee has supplied that information to the Department of Justice. Let me say one more time, we will take any effort to influence witness testimony very seriously. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Now, let me tell you why this is important. And, and we've heard about witness tampering before, but this is Trump directly involved in it. Since Liz Cheney made that announcement, you've even seen white legal pundits on national media, on the cable networks, saying Trump needs to now be prosecuted. Merrick Garland has no choice. And not only do I agree with that, many of us have been saying that anyway. And we've also heard the rumors that Merrick Garland and the Justice Department, perhaps at the behest of those bad advice giving advisors at the White House in the administration, saying we well, don't prosecute Trump. We don't want to set a precedent of prosecuting a former president, a precedent of prosecuting a former president. Um, and if you prosecute him, it's only going to make him a martyr. And then he'll be able to raise money and get reelected. That's the argument. That's that's the, 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 the rumor that Garland has brought into. So you prosecute Andrew Gillum for wire fraud, but you don't prosecute Donald Trump for raising $250 million uh, wire fraud for stop steal. Money's not used for that. Okay, but but this is why witness tampering, this is, this is different. If he is witness tampering right now, he's no longer the president. And just like with Al Capone, you, you don't always get folk on the main thing, you get them on the small thing. You're not prosecuting a former president for his crimes when he was president, even though he should be doing that, he should be prosecuted for that. But the likelihood of that happening and I get it, there's the fear that when a Republican's in office, then they're gonna stop prosecuting Barack Obama and all the other former presidents, Jimmy Carter, everybody, Bill Clinton. But he's not the president now. And, and I think too, even, even though it, it's small in the whole context of organizing an insurrection, another attorney said, you know, Trump ought to, be, ought to get RICO charges. But it, it, even though it's small, Everybody gets witness tampering. That, that, that's people can can grab that. They can hold. They can. They, that's not. That's not complicated. You know what witness tampering is. You have to go through a whole lot of explanation. Explanation, and it's pretty black and white. You got evidence that he contacted a witness and threatened them. Boom, A to B. 
It's real simple. And, 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 and you go to a jury. You know, a, a lot of these other situations, well, you know, it can be a little subjective. But did you contact a witness? Yes or no? And then he's potentially busted. So I, I think this opens the door. And she said it's going to the DOJ. So that's what Liz Cheney. So they don't say, why would she say that they're going to send something to the DOJ if the committee now is not interested in the DOJ prosecuting and making a move? So this is a significant development. And I remind everybody what I've been saying in the past. Another important piece of testimony was Raffensperger, the secretary of state in Georgia. Trump calls him. I need 11,000 votes. Raffensperger said, well, I can't find 11,000 for you because over 30,000 Georgians, I think it was 33,000, over 33,000. Mr. Trump did not vote for you. I'm sorry. 33,000 Georgia Republicans did not vote for president at all. That was in 2020. He hadn't been charged with insurrection. All this other stuff hadn't come out yet. What was going on with Georgia Republicans, the ones that we are led to believe now are going to vote for Herschel Walker? What was going on with them in November 2020 that they didn't even bother to vote for their man? And now they're going to vote for him after an insurrection, after a January 6th committee hearings, and now after the revelations that he was choking Secret Service agents, trying to grab steering wheels, the revelation after hearing about the revelation that he knew people were armed and literally said. They're not here to hurt me. After the revelation. That he wanted the military to seize ballots. After the revelation that he sent out a tweet, basically calling for an armed insurrection that he was fully knowledgeable of after the revelation that all of this was planned. It wasn't just something that came up out of the clear blue sky. So them 30,000 people in Georgia. And we don't know about other states. They're going to go vote for him now. And now after we hear about witness tampering. Death by a thousand cuts is death by a thousand cuts. And, and, and this is the witness tampering thing may be the thousandth cut. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.